I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. The photographer Diane Arbus once said, A photograph is a secret about a secret. The more it tells you, the less you know. Intrigued by the power of photographic images to inspire narrative and reverie, playwright Guillermo Verdicchia takes us on a personal journey through some of the realms of photography. Camera lucida, a reference to a 19th century optical device used by artists, examines the photographs in our wallets, on our walls, and in our lives. It attempts to glimpse the secret at the heart of photography and to offer the listener another look at the, as Susan Sontag puts it, most mysterious of all the objects that make up and thicken the environment we recognize as modern. We begin this episode, which first aired in 2001, with a short conversation between Guillermo Verdichia and Ideas producer Nahid Mustafa. Can you just say a couple of things about um, what you remember about making this documentary? So it's really interesting that I think this piece was made just around the moment when analog photography was about to be replaced. Uh, so it's kind of, there's something elegiac about it. There's something, it, it was on the it's on the very end of things. So one of the things for sure I was thinking about was my family. It was my extended family, was family in Argentina, was grandparents who were gone. And at the same time, I had young, my children were much younger. So there was a feeling of wanting some kind of um, connection or relationship or, or something of a longer um duration than just my little uh, Im- immediate nuclear family. And so these photographs were an invitation to look back and to feel some kind of longer relationship or connection, an extension into my family. I was super interested in the way these pictures, which which seem to be, you know, in some ways, analog photographs are kind of an objective statement. It's uh, light hits a, um, a, a chemical film and uh, there's a result. And yes, it's edited and it's I've chosen the frame and all of that. But there is some, there's a kind of objective statement happening here. Um, and I was super interested in the way something that looks like a statement actually is a story. And then very interested in the way we use narrative in families to create bonds, the way the photograph functions as a way to create attachment or to deepen attachment, to strengthen attachment, the way photographs thicken our experience of one another and our memories. And that is, again, through the telling the telling of stories, whether that is a story we're telling ourselves, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be my mom is explaining this picture to me, but it's a story I then repeat and kind of engrave and refine for myself. And that results in, um, I guess, or an enriching or a deepening or a, the feeling of attachment. <laughs> 
And then finally, I guess the, the, the third piece is pretty obvious that I was reading uh, John Berger and Susan Sontag and Roland Barthes and probably Willem Flusser. Um, and they were completely informing how I was thinking about that kind of image making and about the materiality of photos and, uh, and, and what they invite us to, to experience. For you, what has been the starkest change about your personal relationships with the photographs that you that you see and that you make and that you that you have in your life? Well, I guess you know the 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 obvious material difference moving from prints to digital images packed on our phones. Um, that has been a, a, a qualitative shift, a quantitative shift that has resulted in a qualitative shift, I think. Um, I think uh, the uses of photography, or that kind of photography anyway, that sort of snapshot, family photo, et cetera, uh, have also shifted in, in, in a way. I think I think about it now, perhaps pejoratively, I think that we're um, broadcasting that we're uh, often marketing or uh, we're using photographs to advertise ourselves in certain ways. The snapshot, I, I find that that is something that I feel like I miss. I miss the snapshot. I miss the candid image, um, this ability to delete and retake and delete and retake, you know, <laughs> and, and missing a kind of genre of photography. Absolutely. Great point. So yeah, snapshots, I don't, I don't think they really exist anymore in the same way uh, because we can take, you know, a hundred pictures and uh, until we get the one we like and delete all the rest and send that perfectly edited, art-directed photo of ourselves or of the space or whatever it is out. Whereas before, um, it cost money to print uh, 12 pictures to 24 or 36, and uh, you, you sort of took your chances. And and obviously, we were much more, in a way, naive. We were much more innocent about the images we made of ourselves. Partly, I think, because they weren't circulating as far as they might today. Um, and also, we weren't inundated with quite, perhaps, with quite so many um, highly curated, very carefully constructed images of ordinary people. I'm sort of in that phase of my life now where um, sometimes when I think about change and loss, I wonder if I am being a curmudgeon and and simply, <laughs> you know, kids these days, um, or if if there is something tangible that's been lost with change. Can you say something about that? Well, um, I also worry that uh, I'm turning into, you know, an older person who is uh, thinks exactly that. Kids these days, they don't. We used to be, you know, we were amused with just a rock. We didn't need anything special. We just needed string and a sock. That's right, and a can, and we were happy for days, whatever that is. Um, but I think, you know, um, change is real, but not all change is necessarily always positive. And we know, you know, there are there are gains and there are losses and there are shifts. Um, so I, I, I do think we've lost a kind of relationship to a certain kind of image that is meditative or introspective that requires a certain amount of time. Um, 
where you would you would hold a photograph in your hand and you would kind of sink into it. But today, the word we use is scroll. We scroll, and we don't even scroll. We whip through those photos on our feed or on our phone. And I, I don't know if you've probably had the experience of looking for a photograph on your phone or, or waiting for someone to find a photograph they want to tell you about it on their phone, and we can never find it. Um, it's kind of, they've, they've vanished, and it's, we have no patience. And I think... I'm going to go out on a really big limb, but I think there's a kind of death of interiority. There's a kind of, we can't be bored anymore. We can't because we're, we, we're able to stimulate ourselves constantly. So I think we're, we're, we're missing a kind, of, a kind of reflection or a kind of meditative relationship to our um, images of ourselves and to, of our families or of others, I think. It, that that has shifted. Um, I, I think what we're what we're engaged in now is something much more um, is much thinner, as far as I'm concerned. And that's the only word I have for it. Any new favorite photographs since you made the piece? Yeah, there's a photograph of my son who's I don't know in the picture. He's I don't know four, five maybe, and he's on the back porch with my father, and they are working on his bike, and they're you know working on a wheel on the back of the bike and um this has now become an important photograph because my father passed away not too long ago and because my son is a very serious um ultra endurance cyclist and uh my father also liked to cycle but there's this connection there where the two of them are meeting over bike mechanics and bikes and um there's a story that we now tell in our family in a way not explicitly necessarily but about a connection between my father and my son and bicycles and adventure or travel and fixing things and it's uh concretized uh in that photograph and we can point to it and say there it is. That's that's exactly what we're talking about, and perhaps that's the moment where it started. So um, it's one of those links. And there may be a point, you know, when that photograph somehow circulates in our extended family that there isn't somebody to tell that story, and it will become kind of anonymous, um, and a new story will have to be invented about it, maybe. Some years ago, I went back to Argentina. At my aunt's house one afternoon, I was thrilled to come across a handful of photographs of my family. Not too many, not very well archived, but they were enough to satisfy my genealogical impulses. When I returned to Canada, I had these small and precious photos cleaned and reproduced, slightly enlarged. I put three of them up in my basement office at home. These are close-on head-and-shoulder shots of my paternal grandfather and my aunt, the one who gave me the photos. The third is a photograph of my paternal grandmother, my abuela Juana, when she was maybe three years old, sitting in what looks like a child-sized wooden rocking chair. One of the most interesting things for me in this photograph is the rectangular shape of her head, just like my brother, Roberto's and something in her look that reminds me of my son, Theo. I gave an enlarged copy of another one of the photos that I found that afternoon in Argentina to my father. This photograph shows my abuelo Rafael, my paternal grandfather, in a pair of overalls, his hands behind his back, looking directly toward the camera. He's standing in front of a large truck, his truck. His name is painted on the door. And on the hood of the truck, to my grandfather's left, 
sits a five or six-year-old boy. And when I first saw the picture, I recognized my grandfather immediately, but my aunt had to tell me that the boy was my father. If I were to show you the photograph, you might comment on the lovely hand tinting, the orangey browns, the hints of sky blue, and the flashes of deep green in the background foliage. When I gave the picture to my father, I think it was for Christmas, he burst into tears. Strange power that photographs have. That's not my street, it's one of these back streets, alleys. Muse, how you call this? An I don't know. Sure. An but anyway, the, what's interesting is that these homes have some kind of intimacy. They are, they are together. They, they, they are huddled like, 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 like birds in a flock when they come on some shore and they, they hide under each other's wings or something like this. Mm -hmm. So. When Maladin came to Canada from Sarajevo, he saw this photograph on the wall of a friend's house and was immediately drawn to it. So you can see all these generations being there and, and, right. and all this human excitement and disappointments that could be uh, survived behind yeah. these walls. Right. And you see this door. Yeah. Behind that would be a garden. And uh, with few uh, apple trees or cherry trees or something that we would go, children would go to loot this fruit. That's what I like in this photo. And, and he, even though he was keeping this photo for 10 years before I came, so obviously it was very dear to him too. But when he saw how I was moved seeing it. He simply gave it to me. Yeah. Camera lucida then, not obscura. I wanted to bring these vague impulses, these tenebrous intuitions regarding certain photographs into the light. I wanted to get a better look. I decided to speak to some people who might shed some light on the subject. Ross Winter was one of them. Well, uh, Camera Lucida is one of the uh, precursors of the camera. Uh, the gentleman traveler who went off to Italy in the 18th century and unfortunately couldn't draw would take along a prism on legs um, through which he could contrive to look at both the sheet of paper and the view that he wanted to trace and copy one to another. My introduction to photography came through my father and my uncle. One of my first photographs is of my father and uncle on Christmas morning in the living room at my uncle's place in Rochester, New York. And they're standing side by side, looking a little rumpled and sleepy, wearing warm ponchos over their pajamas. It must have been cold. Cameras slung around their necks, prepared to document the opening of Christmas presents. My uncle is wearing a Nikon, with a large flash mounted on a bracket, while my father has a smaller Pentax with a correspondingly smaller flash. I remember those cameras and their attachments and accessories. The screw and bayonet mount lenses, hoods, flashes and sync cables, brackets, tripods, motor drives, light meters, all exerted a powerful fascination over me. 
I remember my uncle's Nikon F. Large, heavy, and wonderful. When you press the shutter button, it gave a most satisfying sh-click, like a trap locking shut. The delicate work of photography, capturing decisive moments, to borrow Cartier-Bresson's phrase, required heavy machinery. Photography appeared to me, at least as practiced by my father and uncle, as a fairly serious undertaking. It demanded knowledge of film speeds and foot candles, of f-stops and lumens, not to mention some geometry and trigonometry to effectively bounce light off ceilings. But it also required fast reflexes, intuition, luck. Even with all the right gear, with the know-how, with the spotmatic internal metering, there was no guarantee that the picture would be any good. It seemed to me that the photographer had to be in a special state of preparedness to take a photo, a heightened state of awareness. In his story, Blow Up, Julio Cortázar wrote, In all ways, when one is walking about with a camera, one has almost a duty to be attentive to not lose that abrupt and happy rebound of sun's rays off an old stone or the pigtails flying run of a small girl going home with a loaf of bread or bottle of milk. Of such attention and such moments, it seemed to me, were photographs made. A gesture, a pulse, an instant, an appearance, the world, life. Photography was a kind of magic. For someone at the Leipzig City Advertiser in photography's infancy, it was black magic. He wrote, The wish to capture evanescent reflections is not only impossible, but the mere desire alone, the will to do so, is blasphemy. God created man in his image, and no man-made machine may fix the image of God. Is it possible that God should have abandoned his eternal principles and allowed a Frenchman to give to the world an invention of the devil? Most people, however, were impressed by the technology. Edgar Allan Poe called photography the most important and perhaps the most extraordinary triumph of modern science. Indeed, the new technology was deemed so important that the French government bought the invention from its inventors, Nieps and Daguerre. Daguerre's own prophecy regarding photography has come true to a startling degree. Everyone, he said, with the aid of the daguerreotype, will make a view of his castle or country house. People will form collections of all kinds, which will be more precious because art cannot imitate their accuracy and perfection of detail. Even portraits will be made. This important discovery, capable of innumerable applications, will not only be of great interest to science, but it will also give a new impulse to the arts. The leisured class will find it a most attractive occupation, and although the result is obtained by chemical means, the little work it entails will greatly please ladies. The daguerreotype is not merely an instrument which serves to draw nature. On the contrary, it is a chemical and physical process which gives her the power to reproduce herself. Niagara Falls, lots of Niagara Falls. I, I tell you, I'm getting vainer as I get older. Oh, and the so car going over the car. I really oh. just carry them around because now and again people need two things of identification. This one turned out very well the first time. And, uh, and my dad, he's passed away about 12 years now, but that's my favorite. I was uh, right in the middle of my Bell's palsy. <laughs> 
I have a, a picture of my friend that she probably wouldn't be too happy that oh, I'm showing. She be caught dead with that, that haircut. Uh, it's my friend Rekha Shaw, who um, it's a, an old she high school thing. I I didn't wall. even realize I had this it. Figure hanging there with a rope around its neck. Photographs enjoy an authority that other kinds of images don't. When we look at a painting, or read a description, or listen to someone on the radio, we are aware that we are looking at, reading, or listening to an interpretation. Looking at a painting, we note, for example, the thickness of the paint applied to the canvas, or the rhythm of the brush strokes, the pictorial choices of color and composition. Reading an article, essay, or story, we may become aware of the language the writer has used or of particular literary devices that are employed. The writer herself may draw attention to what she has chosen to leave out of her argument. We follow a line of thought and are conscious that we are following a path someone has laid out for us. We are aware that another subjectivity has interposed itself between us and the event or thing. We might disagree with the interpretation. I'm sorry, we might think to ourselves looking at a painting entitled Tree, but uh, trees don't look like that, okay? Or we might go further, that's not the way it happened at all. This piece is biased. But we rarely feel inclined to argue with a photograph. I don't, anyway. Photos feel somehow incontrovertible. They are evidence of something out there, something that actually happened that really existed. Okay, it's uh, it's a woman. She's a middle-aged woman. It's in the summer. She's wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and she's obviously just come out of a grocery store. Um, she has no idea that anybody's watching her, and she's just walking back to her car, which isn't in, in the photograph. Uh, you can see um, it's in a mall, an outdoor mall, and you can see the the shopping carts on the one side from the grocery store. Uh, In 1871, um, a new use for photography was found. Surveillance. Something else in her right hand, which... In June of that year, the French police photographed the communards in order to identify them before rounding them up and killing them. I work as a private investigator. Um, I work for a company. uh, It's Profile Investigations. And we do mostly corporate and insurance investigations. Um, We don't really handle domestic work, you know, divorce cases or anything like that. Um, Usually, when we get a file from a client, it's um, to determine whether they're, you know, the level of their activities. Um, If they've been in a car accident, for instance, they say that they can't work or they can't, you know, do activities of daily living that they used to... um, sports, housework. So basically they want us to find out whether, you know, they can, they can do these things. And uh, so how do, you, how do you do that? How do you find out or determine whether or not they can do these things? Um, what we usually do is we start at their home and basically follow them from the beginning of the day, early in the morning, uh, through their day and find out, you know, if they're active. If they come out, we follow them. If they go shopping, we follow them wherever they go. And we take photos, (laughs) video. Um, Even if they're not doing anything, just to show that they're, you know, they're not doing anything. But uh, what 
what really we're looking for is to see if they're doing what they're not supposed to be. You know, if they say they can't work and they're out there building a deck in their backyard, that kind of thing, then obviously, you know, that's, right. you know. I just had a thought that just escaped me now. Um, oh, I know. This is legal then? <laughs> so it's, it's legal <laughs> to, uh, to, to take uh, pictures uh, of someone without them knowing? And it is legal if you're licensed as a private investigator. The photos are um, admissible in court as yes. evidence. Oh, oh, yes. The philosopher Wilhelm Flusser remarks that an image, a photographic image, can be taken in at a glance. But to deepen the significance of the image, Flusser says, one must allow one's gaze to wander over the surface, feeling the way as one goes. Flusser notes that our gaze follows a complex path formed, on the one hand, by the structure of the image, and on the other, by the observer's intentions. We bring to everything we encounter in an image a set of remembrances, associations, opinions, and information. There is room, then, in any image for interpretation. At Life magazine, instructive name for a magazine devoted to pictures, the senior editor ends his brief editor's note in the Great Pictures of the 20th Century issue with the phrase, Seeing is believing. He doesn't claim, you'll note, that seeing imparts knowledge, but that rather it guides us towards belief, which is undoubtedly powerful, but also a highly individual and subjective affair. And they look at them and they go, my gosh, that looks so, like, you know, that's so amazing. It's such a simple shot. But what they really see is... Oh, the car going over Niagara Falls. I carry it just because she gave it to me. And I have a thing about throwing out pictures of people. It doesn't seem right. You have to learn how to look at photographs, or, or anything for that matter. That is a very good friend of mine. Her name is Leah. Um, so that's a lot of film. I shoot a lot of film. I practice a lot. And I take risks. Do you have a picture of your brother as a bullfighter in a suit of lights by any chance? Um. No, I don't actually. Oh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. So you just turned the page, and these were all by an anonymous photographer, but one who had a wonderful... Uh, it's like when you're reading a novel, you have to learn to read between the lines. But when you're looking at a photograph... Famous of pilots. There we go. This is it. Uh-huh. Wearing the pilot's costume. You have to try and feel what the photographer is trying to communicate to you, because there's a story going on there. Very good. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. 
We return now to Camera Lucida from Guillermo Verdicchia. It was originally broadcast in 2001. There's a third person in that hand-tinted photograph with my father and a grandfather. He looks older, flimsier than my grandfather, whom he stands beside, and in contrast to my grandfather's overalls, he wears pants, a shirt, a vest, a blue tie, and a hat. He's almost in the center of the picture, and it occurs to me that maybe he was intended to be the subject of the photograph. He is not the subject as far as I'm concerned. I have to make an effort to actually see him. So what is the subject of the photo for me then? The truck in some ways. That truck I heard so much about when I was young. Or is my grandfather the subject for me with his thick hair swept up off his forehead and his eyes looking straight out at me? Or is the theme of the picture the past, this Argentina of the past that I can only visit in photographs. The night after writing this, I dreamed of my abuelo, my grandfather, and I awoke the following morning energized by the thought that he was coming to visit. When I realized it had been a dream, I felt suddenly tired and very disappointed. I was trying to actually find a particularly incriminating picture of my so, father, but... But you gotta I love weddings. Lost this it. is Frank and I, from Frank and Dorothy. You gotta love photography. <laughs> she would, because my mother has anything that um, has to do with degrees all over the place. Family photographs stored in a tin, where we also keep elastic bands, stamps, old champagne corks, and special buttons or in photo albums kept in attics or basements or the upstairs closet. Family photographs in their various incarnations, the formal portraits taken early in the century, the fabulously curly-edged prints from the 50s, the faded color prints taken with 127 cameras so many Christmases ago. These pictures provide for us today some of the comfort, some of the security of extended family. They give us a sense of belonging to something larger, more stable, longer lived than our immediate nuclear family or family fragment. We project ourselves into the photographs, imaginatively placing ourselves in a different time and place, and we use the photos to project into the future, to conceive what we will look like in 20, 30 or 40 years. We learn about our families from snapshot collections and photo albums. These photos introduce us to our parents' friends and to our parents themselves. In my 20s, I found a dozen or so black and white photographs taken when my mother was in her 20s. These photos, taken during a road trip, a camping holiday, show my mother standing in a dry, empty landscape beside the motorcycle my parents owned. A 500 triumph, I think. My mother, who often disapproved of my sartorial decisions, my mother is wearing dark sunglasses and a black leather jacket. My mother. Upon seeing that photo, I had to reevaluate everything. 
Through these family photographs, we are also introduced to relatives we never knew. Well, it's a black and white picture, a rectangular format, and there's two boys in their mid-teens, probably, um, cutting wood together. Um, So the focal point for me is the boy on the left, um, who is um, a cousin. Um, The picture's taken somewhere outside of Moscow in the Soviet Union uh, in, it would be 1946. He's actually in Young Pioneer Camp, I found out, which was the, you know, Young Communist Summer Camp, which was uh, both both a method of propagandizing kids, but it was also terrific from what I hear generally. Kids who were stuck in the city got to go out to the, to the country. And he looks uh, a bit like my son now. So he died in 1951, and we had known, the family had known, that was before I was born, but the family had known that he died, but not the circumstances. And it was in 1975 when my mother... Uh, visited Russia, that we found out that he had been arrested and put on trial and shot as a dissident. Um, The kind of activities that got him killed were um, wanting to print up pamphlets, uh, questioning the perfection of the Soviet Union. Uh, So the look on his face is really remarkable to me in this because he there's a certain hesitancy there. It's this moment, I guess, where he's imbued in the ideology that later killed him. So um, that hesitancy on his face, he does look like he's having fun. He probably was having fun. That's probably why he sent the photograph to my grandmother. And I guess seeing him somehow like my son, who's, who's just a tiny bit older uh, than he is now, uh, you know, we project our, our wishes and hopes, and so this is this moment of stillbirth of a whole, of a huge, of a huge, um, massive uh, world full of hopes here. We may be inclined to think of our family photos, our snapshots, as hurried, off-the-cuff images. But Richard Chalfin, a visual anthropologist at Temple University and author of Snapshot Versions of Life, notes that the majority of these images are made with considerable deliberation. The deliberations involved in a snapshot, Chalfin observes, are social, not necessarily aesthetic. We worry about who gets into the picture and who is left out, who stands where and in what relation to whom. We try to choose appropriate locations or settings for these off-the-cuff, inexpert, informal images, assembling bodies around baby, in front of the truck, on the porch, or in front of the blue and white mountain. You might think, for instance, of a, a grandmother uh, holding uh, uh, her grandchild um, outside the household uh, in front of a, uh, a b- some blooming bush of some sort, or a picture of a father, uh, possibly a son, uh, sitting or uh, standing beside the, the car. Um, those are two common ones. Or a third might be 
the, the picture of kids playing at, at uh, some water-related area, usually the beach, but something like that. Photographs, snapshots, accompany us throughout our lives. And we like to think that they provide an accurate record, a document of our lives. Now, these snapshots begin almost at the moment of birth. My brothers and I were photographed, swaddled bundles, through the windows of the hospital nursery, but my children were photographed right in the delivery room. I didn't take the pictures. My sister-in-law, our labor coach, did. We still look at these pictures. Theo doesn't like the one where he appears blue and distressed. Thinking about it now, it seems curious, really. I can see how photographs might get taken during a home birth, but... Try to imagine taking photographs in any other hospital or medical context. There are no photos of my daughter's bladder surgery, for example. Nor are there, come to think of it, any photographs of my vasectomy, which is surely a significant event in my life and that of my family. Chalfin and many other observers note that though we can take pictures of all sorts of things, vacuum cleaners, dirty diapers, the dentist, or the landlord coming around to collect the rent, these things or people usually aren't documented photographically. It would appear that some things are more appropriate photographic subjects than others. I have wedding pictures, for example, but none of my divorce. Similarly, we, generally speaking, don't document bad report cards, bouts of depression, or all the hours we spend at work. Uh, if you look at uh, U.S. family albums across different social classes, it's as if people don't go to work. <laughs> I've often asked people to say, if, if someone from Venus or Mars or Mercury came down to planet Earth and looked at a bunch of albums that came from the U.S. Uh, uh, citizens and tried to reconstruct their lives from those images, what would they say about us? And they, we wouldn't be working. We'd be leisure. We'd be having a great old time. Chalfin points out that these photos we think of as proof or documentation of our lives can only ever be highly selective. He does the math and concludes that a photo collection of 3,000 photos amounts to a total of approximately 30 seconds out of someone's life. The best way, I think, to think about our collections is not as documents but as statements, that we are making statements about our own lives and our position in the world, we're saying, this is who I am, this is how I want to be remembered, I, I've got the money to spend to, do, to make things this way, and, and look how we're conforming to a fabulous set of values, and we're doing it right. The photos we carry in our wallets and put up in our offices, on our walls, serve as letters of introduction. They identify us as part of a larger group. They signal our social bonds. They tell us that we care for each other. How pleased I was to see that Daniel had put up a picture of him and me. I thought I should find a similar picture and put it up in my house so he'd know I felt the same way. I still, do we still have that? We have a picture here of a cat. Oh, I love that place. Your hair for my friend Mateo. As you see, there is, there is a little black. Where can we go there anymore? Black and black little dots. Remember that place where we got Buzz? So it looks like a tiger. Now back to the show. Is that place in Vancouver? My children's school pictures arrived the other day. Sealed in a plastic envelope that said, Handle with care, memories enclosed. Not souvenirs, not photographs, 
but memories. Which struck me as most interesting because the photographs were only taken a month or two ago. My children didn't change much between the time the pictures were taken and the time we received them. The photographs, or the packaging, posited a future when those photos would be valuable reminders of what once was. These photographs are a kind of investment. They will become more valuable with time. Catherine Lash is a wedding photographer. It's for the generations to come, and it really does um, increase in value. It's really one of the only things from your wedding day that actually gets more and more, besides your memories, which are the number one most important, that, that, that become more and more valuable. So. Photographs and memory seem to be inextricably bound. In fact, scientists who study memory refer to something called flashbulb memory. It seems to be associated with highly emotionally charged kinds of events. And so the ones that people seem to have for themselves usually are around events that really kind of um, capture you or are arousing in some sense. Dr. Mary Pat McAndrews is a neuropsychologist at Toronto Western Hospital. And the reason they're called flashbulb memories is because you, you retrieve them along with lots of sensory experiences um, and, and with experiences that seem totally incidental to the kernel of the memory. So, for example, um, I remember where I was when I heard that the Challenger exploded. Um, that's around my f- time for flashbulb memories, and I can remember the elevator I was in, the building I was in, person who came in to tell me. Um, so there are a lot of uh, details of that, almost as though I was able to replay a videotape or look at a photograph of that experience. People uh, have this sense that memory is uh, quite uh, static and rigid, Um, and that our photographs are the same thing, and they've often been equated that photographs are taken for the memory. They are the memory. Where, in fact, I think what's really happened is that people are um, literally constructing something again. There are, there's, you can think of a photograph, in fact, as a construction because it's not everything, is it? It's a very, it's a selective uh, piece of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So when you go back and look at a photograph, in a sense, you're even reconstructing that construction. There, there's certainly a line of thinking that suggests that we never really archive events as they actually happened with all of those characteristics, but rather memory is a reconstructive process. You have bits and elements that you put together and make up a story now about what must have happened in the past. Our photos do change in significant ways. That hand-tinted picture of my father and grandfather standing by the truck meant one thing to me and something very different to my father. It meant one thing to me when I found it and took on yet another value when I became a father. It will acquire yet other significances when my father passes away. And when I die, it will assume yet another set of meanings for my children, if the photo isn't lost somewhere between now and then. Photographs are not stable and fixed things. They are fluid, contingent. You do find people kind of looking into those pictures, almost solving solving problems or questions they have about where they've come from, what their parents were like when they were young. So there's some problem solving going on. That it's true. Uh, intense I remember many years ago when my brother came out, when he told me that he was gay. And I was so surprised, not by the content of his announcement so much, but because I hadn't seen it. 
We stayed up talking for some time. We were at my parents' house, and after my brother went off to bed, I walked through the house looking at all the pictures of him, trying to see if I could see what had been there all along. As an actor, I have had to endure having my picture taken many times. I say endure because I dislike sitting or posing for photographs. I'm not good at it. And consequently, all my headshots, those photos that accompany my resume as an introduction to casting directors and producers, those photos feel, well, they don't feel like me. When I look at my own snapshots, I can't help but fall into, you know, thoughts about, oh, it's either not such a good picture or, you know, everyone looks good except me. I don't look very good or... Um, Gee, that really was a horrible outfit. Why Jane Farrow is a writer and a filmmaker like, who collects anonymous photographs. Like background noises, what you look like. But I think with the anonymous photographs, that whole conversation in your head about, I don't look so good, is completely absent. They're free of all the bad parts, all the drama, all the additional <laughs> baggage that any other snapshot carries. Okay, like a lot of people... in a, Some people take their snapshots to photo restorers to have family members or friends excised from them. They love the photograph, but they can't stand that there's that snarly Aunt Mary in the background or her old sister that they always fought. So they go to great trouble to just blast them out of the background so they can just have that memory the way they want to remember it. So with anonymous photographs, you never have to go to that trouble. You don't know that maybe there's a terrible feud going on between Mary and Carol there. You just think they look fabulous in front of that old Model T Ford in front of the rose bush. Love it. Let's frame it. Jennifer Long is a photographer and co-curator with Catherine Lash of an exhibit of anonymous or vernacular photography that will be part of the Contact Photographic Exhibition this year. Basically, we wanted to take the anonymous snapshot and bring it back into the realm of the public. Because what happens with the, the shots is they're beautiful, but they get stored away in photo albums, people don't see them, and they don't really pay attention to the beauty that they hold. So we wanted to really bring it back out and have people really start taking a look at what these small images hold and what they represent. This it's just a snapshot of a woman walking down Young Street, probably in the 1950s. David Moore and Ross Winter run Camera Lucida, a photographic dealership that concentrates heavily on the vernacular photograph. And someone has written on the bottom of it in ink, which uh, has sort of a very nice sort of calligraphy to it, too. It says Tilly on Young Street, and she has her, um, her 50s-style hat and shoes and so on. And it's a nicely composed picture, but it's just really just a snapshot. And what happens when you take photographs that were created in one context, a family portrait, for example, and display it in another context some 40 to 100 years later? Well, you'd be surprised, actually. What happens is basically people can look at it and apply their own memories and start recre recreating their own memory to surround this image. And there's been many times where people have said, I know I have that image. I, I have one exactly like it at home. And, you know, it's something completely different, but they've just adapted their memories onto this new, this new image. And it can be something as simple as, you know, the way the woman's holding a bouquet of flowers, just that hand gesture that always reminded them of the way their mother would, um, you know, do such. Photographs are tricks we do with time. Time, as I and most folks I know imagine it, moves inexorably forward. One moment 
one second unvaryingly replacing the previous one. Photography does not so much promise to stop the flow of time. Its claims are not that grand. Rather, photography promises that we will be able to hold fragments of time. A photograph will allow us to discern one moment from another. These fragments of our lives will be granted a kind of corporeality, a certain tangibility, a kind of permanence. These moments are extremely brief, one sixtieth of a second, maybe less, one five hundredth of a second if it's a bright day, but they seem to satisfy. This is a photograph, um, a black and white photograph, not too big, it's about five by three, of a group of people, it's actually a family, young family. Um, there are six children in the family and the parents are in the background. Um, it's um, obviously taken outdoors. Mm, there's um, a, uh, an agricultural contraction, I think, is a plough, but a very old one at that, completely unused, because you can see the grass growing on the wheels, over the wheels. Um, the children vary in ages from one in, of months, eight months, to ten years of age. Um, so at first glance, the photograph looks like a very nice family photograph. Um, nothing really major happening here, but for me this photograph has become a very um, important landmark in the history of my family, in context to the country itself as well. Um, my mother was actually pregnant with me at the time and the picture was taken in February but in June there was a major military coup in the country. There had already been a major civil war three years earlier which forced my family to move outside Bogota to this little village. Um, and the military coup, what that did was that made my father redundant from his job. And um, you can tell by my mother's look that life isn't really easy. Um, and the other thing was that that major historical uh, change in, in, in their life caused my, my father to become an alcoholic. Uh, so there, there was a, a, a descendants at the same time in the family dynamics mm. as my father became immersed in his alcoholic problems. So and this photograph it kind of marks the end of an era. The end of an era. And a family that you didn't know, in a way, because you were born after this picture was taken, right? That's right. And uh, would it be fair to say that, um, that, this, that the, the father that appears in this picture is, is a man that you didn't know? Um, it's fair. It's fair to say that. Because Paradoxically, this power to impart reality or corporeality or substance to the fleeting moments of our lives, or to certain moments out of our lives, is achieved by imposing stillness, a kind of mortification. We are able to get a good look at our life when we freeze it. We see ourselves fixed, immobile. We recognize ourselves in something outside ourselves, in something alien to us. We try to seize in this convoluted way, though it doesn't feel convoluted at all. It feels natural, normal as breathing. 
we try to take hold of ourselves, our lives. I'm looking at a picture of a big frame house. It's got three stories. And um, there's an extension at the back and a, a screened-in porch at the front. And on the second level, there's a, a small sleeping balcony also screened in. And the third story has gabled, gabled windows. And it, I should mention the location of the house was important too because it's right on the shores of, uh, of uh, Lake Winnipeg. It, it's a place that I still dream about as being the ideal, the ideal place as a shelter, though, even though I never saw it after the age of nine. Before certain photographs, time becomes a warm pool we dip into. We float in that suspension and skip from now to then, from here to there, from once was to what if and everywhere in between. My mother went to complain to his, to his boss. Why did he fire my husband? He needs, he needs mm -hmm. that job. And the, 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 the boss said, turned around and said, um, I fired him, but I'll hire you. <laughs> so she got the job. There's wonderful irony for me in the way that photographs seem to provoke stories and explanations. That these inert fragments animate us and invite us to recount to tell, to talk to one another. So stories of, of an era that you can't imagine, or I definitely didn't have. I'm looking at that hand-tinted photograph again, the one I gave my father for Christmas. And I haven't come to any conclusions. I'm not certain that I understand much better than I did before. I seem to have come to the end of what I can say about it. But the photograph persists. It's not finished with me. I'm still looking at it. You've been listening to Camera Lucida, written and presented by Guillermo Verdicchia and produced by Bill Lane. It first aired in 2001. This rebroadcast was produced by Nahid Mustafa. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Gabby Hagorilis. The senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.